You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hey, listeners, and welcome back to National Security Law Today. Last week, we brought you an engaging discussion with Cora True Frost, unraveling the complex workings of the International Criminal Court, or ICC. Today, we continue that conversation with Cora in part two, where we dive deeper into an intriguing and relevant aspect of international justice, special tribunals. Cora sheds light on the origins, mechanisms, and crucial role these tribunals play in upholding justice. If you haven't already listened to part one with Cora, be sure to check it out. And as always, thanks for tuning in. I want to pivot for a second because we've been talking a little bit here on this podcast and on the committee about what would a special tribunal look like? How would that form? How do they form? Because I know there you've mentioned the tribunals with respect to Rwanda and Yugoslavia, but people don't really know how those things get assembled and how they acquire their jurisdiction. Yeah, I want to answer that question, but I want to tell you these little stories about. So we talked. I'm about into the, stories, Cora. <laughs> okay, so we, we talked about the difficulty of of nabbing some of these people, like Bashir, and we even Slippery. tried to get into Bashir's mind to think of like, would he rather be now at the Hague in a safe cell, facing trial where there's no death penalty? The basic premise is defendants rarely surrender themselves in voluntary custody before the ICC. But there are some cases where defendants have done just that. And I think those are interesting, right? Wow. So, so who um, did that? I know Milosevic, they found him like at a, a spa, right? Wasn't he selling juice? I, I didn't know he was selling juice. I think he was selling like a tonic. He'd come up with some sort, you know, he had another elixir, oh, you know, wow. other than genocide. He had another one. Oh my <laughs> goodness. The ways that those tribunals were able to lure the defendants into their jurisdictions are sort of led. There are many great stories, and some of them are in the textbooks of international law as sort of are these valid uses of state power? And the courts have generally said yes. But there are at least three defendants who have surrendered voluntarily and then asked to be transferred to the International Criminal Court. Those were defendants in DRC and Uganda and in the Central African Republic. And so that's interesting because those Mm -hmm. defendants then are effectively saying, we think we have a better shot at a fair trial at the International Criminal Court than we would if we faced trial domestically. So they're asking, please, we see our local courts as being unwilling and unable to give us a fair trial. So or they could fear death. You know, these things can sometimes result in assassinations and Yeah. So there have been times when defendants do voluntarily come forward. And then there are also challenges because states often, this happened with Uganda. Uganda asked the court to open an investigation, a preliminary examination into the atrocities committed by the Lord's Resistance Army. The prosecutor said, I'll do that and began to investigate, then said, oh, well, it looks like the Ugandan army has also committed some atrocities. So we need to investigate those too. And then Uganda said, actually, we think we don't need your help and tried to pull out. So the idea, the idea that justice should be blind and that once you have as a state invited the ICC in, you are also really subjecting your own forces to examination also has been tested and tried. And it really did test the will of many African states to stay in the court. But ultimately, they are still members. The, the states that then talked about pulling out or stopping the process have stayed with the court then. 
And I want to hit you with two last serious topics. The first one is how do these tribunals form and you know how are they staffed in terms of the judges, the investigators? How does that work? People hear about these things, but they don't know where they really come from, right? You got judges, you have prosecutors, you have investigators. Who appoints them? When we talk about international criminal justice, we're really talking about crimes that concern the international community. Also, the idea that there's not a domestic jurisdiction that's insulated from the gaze of the rest of us, that we all as a global community have a stake in what happens to individuals in other states. There are lots of different ways that international criminal justice can be administered, and the most common is domestically. In relation to Russia and Ukraine, there are going to be prosecutions in Ukraine of Russians, for sure, right? Mm, there will be domestic... going yeah. Mm. yeah. There will be domestic prosecutions. And when we look back on this, that'll be a major component of what occurs. Also, there will be states in Europe that nab Russians and perhaps Ukrainians who have committed war crimes or crimes against humanity who are alleged to have done that and who will prosecute them under universal jurisdiction, right? So a lot of international criminal justice can happen at the domestic level. But if we're talking about an international tribunal, the main forms are are those created purely by the Security Council according to their sort of definition of the jurisdiction of the particular court, like the one set up for Rwanda and the one set up for the former Yugoslavian Republic. And then there are tribunals called hybrid tribunals, which are near and dear to my heart. And the idea is that you situate the tribunal in the state where the crimes occurred, where the atrocities occurred. In doing so, you have more buy-in from locals who were affected by the crime. And there's more- A place for witnesses to come and go and- Yeah, yeah, there's more uptake Mm -hmm. by the community. There's more of a sense that all of these terrible things, all this suffering happened but I'm seeing the sort of result. And you mentioned the radio in Rwanda. Similarly, for example, for the special court of Sierra Leone that I worked with, the radio played a really important role in sharing the daily progress of the trial and sharing the testimony of the victims who came forward and the allegations against various factions of the war. And so the people of Sierra Leone were able to follow. And then the thing with hybrid tribunals is those proceedings are occurring in all the local dialects. And there's also lots of wonderful chains of interpretation when you have people speaking dialects from sort of four interpreters to get their testimony straight. And there's also a little bit like the telephone game sometimes. And that's the frustration of hybrid tribunals for many international scholars is that by situating them in a state, some scholars worry that the sort of purity of international justice is lost, that they, it mm-hmm. isn't as sort of- There could be influence. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, there could be influence. And in fact, like in the extraordinary chambers of Cambodia, that was a huge problem where the government was constantly intervening. But mm-hmm. in those cases of hybrid tribunals, of which there's some examples are East Timor and Sierra Leone and Cambodia, in those cases, 
It's some amalgam of UN and the host country's agreement that creates the tribunal. And then the idea is that the staffing should be in part local and in part international judges. And in the case of international judges, those are hired usually through UN processes. That whole process of being a part of an international tribunal or a hybrid tribunal is one I wish all lawyers could participate in because it really gives you another perspective on some of the legal doctrines that those of us who are lawyers, we're raised to think this is the way that evidence works or this is the way that criminal procedure should work. But there's it's not many just one way. There's many different models, you know, and it's really funny to be in the courtroom. You can always tell if there's an American trained lawyer who'll stand up and say hearsay, and there's no hearsay objection in the international <laughs> tribunal context. So old habits die hard. So you have hybrid tribunals, you have the ad hoc tribunals, and then you have some that are sort of the special tribunal for Lebanon that has a very limited scope mm. that the Security Council established to try crimes related to the assassination of Hariri. Hariri. And so, mm-hmm. so there are many of those, but the thing about whether it is Sierra Leone or Yugoslavia, those happen after the fact as a response to an atrocity, as opposed to the ICC, which is established in advance of the atrocity. And then, you know, it really does put the world on notice that there is a place where you may go. Mm-hmm. And part of the message of the ICC is your prominence and your stature won't protect you from possible prosecution because there is Which command a responsibility. Problem, right? In a lot of yeah. countries where there's an elitocracy that controls or a kleptocracy that controls things. But let me just make sure that it's clear to our listeners what you're saying, because I think this okay. is an acutely important point. And that is that when you have the ICC, it's a permanent body. That has a greater deterrent effect than wondering if you're getting ready to do something terrible, would there ever be, you know, an ad hoc tribunal that would pop up? That's not going to cross people's minds. But if there is an established institution, you know, they can impose consequences then that would have a greater deterrent effect. And everybody, it's almost like a notice provision in an indictment or something. You know what to expect. You know what the rules are. You know how the cases can end up here. And if you do this, then you know you could be next. So I I think that was a a very, very important point. So a lot of people are looking right now, you know, we've gone through a period of time where you had a president who didn't particularly like international institutions didn't feel that they had great efficacy. We hear Putin criticize them every day. Some of us in the United States could feel that we're living in a post-international consensus era. Now, some of this, sadly, may be made a little bit better by what Putin did in Ukraine. But nevertheless, I think that there are many people look at international institutions, they see bureaucracy, and they wonder if these institutions, what they can do to advance international norms, to mitigate human suffering, to protect children and the vulnerable, and to help promote respect for human dignity. Because they're wondering right now, because we continue to see atrocities, we know we're not ever going to live in a world without atrocities. We're just not. I don't know if there's something in our DNA that makes us just awful at times as, as a species. But when you hear these complaints Or these people who say, well, what good is it doing? It's been around for 80 years. The UN, the ICC has now been around for a long time, two decades. What can they really do to change things? Putin just invaded Ukraine. How do you respond to what might be a brewing cynicism that people are beginning to feel about these institutions? 
feel like I've grown up and matured in a kind of dialogue with what I would call a brewing cynicism. And that where we are now in 2023 is in a state of a real crisis for international institutions that is partially brought on by the cynicism that has been brewing for so many decades. The main rejoinder I have is, and the reason I say that international institutions need to persist and need to survive and make it through this crisis for the future of our planet is there's no alternative in terms of multilateral cooperation. There's a brewing cynicism in this country about domestic elections. And I've listened to my millennial nieces and nephews lament the limited choices they have in a domestic election, but those are the choices. And so you have to, you have to kind of make it, make a choice. And, And we have these limited international institutions, the way that they succeed and that they become the institutions that will serve us as a global community is only through the hope of the people working with them and around them. And unfortunately, at this moment in time, the naysaying voices, I think, have have moved from the point of just being voices to taking really dangerous, reckless actions. Those naysayers are not only Russia with its invasion of Ukraine, but the U.S. sort of broke the ground of U.N. charter rules against aggression when we invaded Iraq without Security Council authorization. And and let's just remind listeners about that. I think we forget. And and there were even people who at the time were persuaded that uh, upon reflection now, may look back on those things and say, well, what was I thinking? I feel that I was a little bit fooled, but we invaded Iraq partly on a story that they were producing yellow cake. And it turns out that that was not right. But we sent one of our most credible and beloved figures to the United Nations, which was General Colin Powell. And he was a special man. We sent our special man, that very important American, to the UN to persuade our partners because we knew that when he entered a room, he had a credibility unparalleled. And when we did that, and when it turns out it wasn't right, what do you think must have happened to the rest of the world's cynicism in that moment? I know for a fact that we as a country lost tremendous credibility and then in the ensuing actions have continued, the the actions that we've taken and then the sort of relaxation of really firmly established law against torture and other international norms that the U.S. pushed backwards. We as an individual country lost tremendous reputational goodwill that we had stored. And that was bad. And, you know, I thought it would be my life work to ensure that the U.S. became a a better global citizen and that we would have the opportunity to kind of try to make better at least some of what we had done. But now the fact that Vladimir Putin has invaded Ukraine and basically parroting and mimicking much of what the U.S. said at the time. Exact phrases, right? Yeah. Yeah. Shock and awe. 
They'll yeah, come out in the streets and they'll yeah. dance and celebrate. Absolutely. And it demonstrates the consequences of breaking these rules that the global community established are much more far-reaching than even the damage that that I saw there. So maybe yeah. we agree. I think it's important that we get back up a, off the ground because that was a blow, I think, to the United States, but it could be overcome in the fullness of time. Well, and it's, it is encouraging that the Biden administration, we didn't talk at all about the sort of sanctions and domestic legislation that Donald Trump put into place against ICC, the ICC prosecutor and the ways that we stalled and we sort of hit our high, our high mark of interference with the ICC under the Trump administration. From someone who's a watcher of international criminal law, it's encouraging that President Biden has walked back those domestic laws targeting the ICC and that the U.S. administration has expressed its support for a tribunal on aggression of Russia. And it would be wonderful if we also decided to subject, in my opinion, if we decided to subject ourselves to the jurisdiction of the ICC too. But And you believe, I think we had in our pre-call, I think you believe it would enhance our credibility globally in such a way that um, it would really be meaningful. Yeah, and I'm a I'm an army brat. I'm the daughter of a service member and I I also understand that the concern of the US, you know, we have an extensive military and people serving all over the world. We don't want them to be subject to another power, but the solution to that is we would the US as a party to the Rome statute would apply our uniform code of military justice and would try those accused of war crimes or crimes against humanity then the ICC wouldn't have to get involved the only the exception would be if we initiate you know an act of aggression our leaders could be hailed before the court because it would be hard to imagine, although we've seen a little bit of an exercise in that recently in this in the U.S. of holding a president accountable for decisions that they've made. So, you know, there were attempts after Iraq at the domestic level in many European countries to hail Donald Rumsfeld or George Bush to a tribunal there, but those weren't successful. We say it's the issue of, of the military that that prevents us from joining. But I think the concern about facing accountability for military decisions at the highest level is something that still worries mm-hmm. the United States. And I think that if, you know, talking to some of our former military lawyers, they would probably say we do hold them accountable. I think that would be their pushback yeah. that we have. But then, a, we but have then they also know they can't hold like Donald Rumsfeld and George, but like right, right, those right. folks have not been. Yeah. The people who are, you know, jawing in the National Security Council and making these very, very big decisions. I think that's right. So Cora, when could the Security Council intervene on an existing prosecution in the ICC? So Article 16 of the Rome Statute allows the Security Council to suspend for a period of 12 months an ongoing prosecution or investigation. That hasn't happened yet. In the early days of the court, the United States was able to marshal 
cajole, negotiate, I don't know what it looks like behind the scenes, the agreement of Security Council members to issue resolutions stating that U.S. service members would not be subject to the jurisdiction of the ICC. And they did that under Article 16. So each time the council enacted a resolution, it was valid for 12 months. Then during the Iraq war, the U.S. lost the goodwill of its fellow Security Council members to continue that process. And since then, we have not seen the Security Council use Article 16 to interfere with the proceedings before the court. All right. Well, let's hope that nothing interferes with any ultimate possible prosecution of Putin. I don't see himself surrendering. I think a more likely scenario is that he persists in this horrible conflict for as long as he possibly can until the Russian people tire of it. But it is important to think about accountability. We are a rule of law fan club here in the standing committee. (laughs) We do believe that that is a good thing. We do believe accountability makes the world a better place. So I want to thank you for your time tonight. And thank you for your very important work in this area. And I will look forward to seeing some more things that you, I expect, will write and do in this area. It's always a pleasure to find somebody who is the exact right expert. And I feel like we did that tonight. So we hope you'll come back and join us again. Thanks, Elisa. It was a pleasure. And I want to thank everybody for listening to NSLT tonight. Be sure to share this episode with a friend. You should probably discuss the issues that I've discussed tonight with Cora. And remember, you can reclaim your attention span by listening to our long-form podcasts intended, rather, to bring you real law, not sound bites or clickbait, and to make you think more deeply about the issues you thought you knew. Remember, you can send us comments and feedback. You can find us on Twitter at ABA NATSEC, or you can send us an email at nationalsecurityatamericanbar.org. Our producer and writer is me, Elisa Poteet. I'm always here in my individual capacity. Francis Berkham is our editor and my co-producer. Rebecca Salito is our program manager. And my other co-producer is Holly McMahon, along with the amazing leaders of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Thank you for listening. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.